Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we warp your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On another Blast from the Past edition from the days when the show was produced by a large team of volunteers, Chris Stewart spoke with SETI astronomer Jill Tata, Lindsay Gray explains the science of hair, and I talked about giant spiders. This morning's detection of an unidentified radio source from deep space can neither be confirmed nor denied. Whatever it is, it ain't local. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence had its signal boosted when Carl Sagan's novel Contact became a huge Hollywood hit movie, starring Jodie Foster. Her character was based on real-life astronomer Jill Tata. Chris Stewart spoke with her during her trip to Australia in 2005. Take it away, Chris. As the Pythons put it in their movie, The Meaning of Life, we'd better pray there's intelligent life somewhere up in space because there's bugger all down here on Earth. Across the globe, groups of dedicated scientists aren't praying about it. They're scanning the heavens for signals from beyond our planet. They're scientists with SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. SETI has been a sexy bit of science for a while, you can even help the search by getting a screensaver that downloads and processes SETI data while you're away from your computer. Carl Sagan wrote Contact, a book about a young, determined SETI researcher who discovers a message hidden within the radio noise from the cosmos and makes contacts with beings from another world who end up looking just like her father or something. It's complicated. It was made into a film starring Jodie Foster a few years ago and it made a bit of a splash at the box office. The scientist believed to be the inspiration for the protagonist in Contact is Dr Jill Tata, the Bernard M. Oliver Chair at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. Dr Tata was in Australia recently and gave a talk at the University of Sydney on how SETI is going. She also held a workshop that tackled the question, let's say we do meet some aliens, what do we do then? I caught up with Dr Tata before her workshop last week and asked her, first of all, just how do you go about searching for extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, you can't find the intelligence directly. What you can try and do is look for some evidence of someone else's technology, something that's modifying um, the normal natural environment in ways that we can sense over interstellar distances. And pragmatically, that has meant looking for signals, either radio signals or more recently optical signals. And we look for signals that have characteristics that nature, as far as we know, can't produce. I'm assuming we're not talking about someone sending a signal that says, hi, we're out here. So what are you looking for? Well, I'd take that signal in a minute uh, if that were what was available. But what we're looking for are artifacts in the electromagnetic spectrum. Our technology has figured out a number of different ways of producing signals which are very detectable above the noise that's always present. And these are the kinds of signals that we're looking for. Because nature doesn't emit in that way, but at least the technology that we know about does. 
So that means in the radio part of the spectrum, we're looking for signals that are crammed into a very small spectral region. And in the optical part of the spectrum, we're looking for signals that are compressed not in the frequency domain, but in the time domain. So very, very short pulses that will be broadband, white light, the kind of thing that a laser would put out. So you're looking for the kind of signal that would say to you, that's obviously coming from a technologically advanced civilization rather than just something natural. Or it could be coming from, you know, youngsters like us who are pretty primitive technologically. We expect that any technology out there that we can detect is going to be a lot older than we are. Technologies more primitive than us aren't detectable over interstellar distances, and SETI won't succeed unless technology, on average, lasts a long time. And if that's the case, if technologies are generally long-lived, then the ones that we are going to find are older. Have there ever been any occasions where you thought you had it? Have there ever been any false alarms? Yeah, there have been a few, and they're really exciting when they happen. The, the most long-lived and exciting one was uh, something that took place in 1998 when we were observing with two telescopes as the project that I ran for the last decade called Project Phoenix always did. These two telescopes are widely separated so that we can help discriminate against our own interference. And we were using a large telescope at, in West Virginia at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory and another telescope in Woodbury, Georgia. And then the Woodbury, Georgia telescope got hit by lightning and it fried a disk drive on a computer. So that was off the air for a few days, but any radio astronomer who has time on a radio telescope is going to keep observing. And so we continued to observe at Green Bank, and we got a signal. And it was a very interesting signal. We did the only thing we could do with one telescope at our disposal. We pointed the telescope away from the star we were observing. Signal went away. We pointed back at the star. Signal was back. We pointed in a different direction. Signal went away came back to the star, it was there again. So what did it turn out to be? Well, after hours, the star finally set, and we knew at that point that it probably the signal wasn't coming from the star. But it took us a lot of internet research to find out that the signal, in fact, was coming from the SOHO spacecraft, which is studying the sun and is in orbit around the sun. So you found evidence for intelligence, just not quite the one you were looking for. That's right. And uh, we actually did an experiment and showed that when you get very excited, there isn't a lot of intelligence in the control room either, (laughs) because I had a clever idea, and I wrote a small program, I actually wrote it correctly, to look for the pattern that we were seeing in the signal and to query our database and say, have we ever seen that same pattern before from somewhere else on the sky? Got all this right, but when the data was spewed out by the computer, I misread the output, right? And I, I missed the fact that, oh yeah, that pattern was there. We'd seen it before. So we spent another few hours longer than we would have had to in an excited and expectant state because I didn't get it right. It must have been a very exciting couple of days with a bit of a disappointment at the end. But listen, your workshop this afternoon is about, let's say we do find a signal what do we do then? Well, it's a great question. Um, Carl Sagan had an answer when he wrote the book Contact, and he, uh, he envisioned that around the observatory, the world would show up and there would be this essentially circus environment with um, a religious component and, and car salesmen and other kinds of people trying to make money out of the event and people just curious. That may be the environment that we face, or it may be that 
the uh, detection takes place in a geopolitical situation in the future where everyone's expecting it. We've educated the world to this possibility, and so no big deal. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought that was going to happen one of these days. Nice to know that it fi they've finally gotten there. Or it may play out in a geopolitical stage, which is just fraught with tensions, and one party or another might try and somehow use this information to their own benefit. It's hard. When you talk to the sociologist, they tell us that people will respond to this information in terms of the belief systems that they hold at the moment. You obviously believe quite passionately in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence or you wouldn't have been working in the field for a very long time. There are obviously people who believe that there are aliens walking among us now, right through to the other extreme, which are people who believe we're the only ones around. How confident are you that in your lifetime we're actually going to make that contact? Are we alone? I don't know the answer to that question. And uh, you started out to say that I believe in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and that is quite true. I believe that it's very worthwhile to try and answer this old, old question experimentally. That isn't the same as saying I believe there's extraterrestrial intelligence out there. That's a question to which I have no answer. To quote a sentence, it was actually the last sentence in the first uh, scientific paper published on the subject of SETI. The probability of success is difficult to estimate. But if we never search, the chance of success is zero. So my answer is I intend to keep searching. Leading the search for intelligent life out there in space. You're listening to Discovery. Thank you, Chris. What, How and Why is Hair? From 2005, Lindsay Gray explains the science of hair. And now here's Lindsay Gray with evidence that some hairs are in fact slow and steady. I've long wished I could braid my eyebrows and, to highlight my eyes, adorn them with shining turquoise spangles. Disappointingly, neither my eyebrows, eyelash, leg, arm or shortened curly hair grows to any stylable lengths. But how come? Why do our head hairs apparently grow endlessly long, but our body hairs seem to know when to stop growing, even though all hair is dead? This perplexing phenomena is a mystery to me no more. The explanation lies at the root of each hair filament. When we were embryos, we each grew about 5 million hair follicles all over our bodies in our skin. We never grow anymore as we age, they just decrease in density as our growing skin stretches. Hair follicles are narrow, tubular pits in our skin's top layer, the epidermis. The bottom of the follicle pit is anchored in the skin's dermis, which is the layer beneath the epidermis. At the base of the hair follicle, there is a small cluster of special dermal cells called the papilla. The papilla is connected to both a network of capillaries that deliver nutrients and oxygen to the hair follicle and a network of nerves that provide touch perception. Overlying the papilla is a thin layer of another type of cell called the matrix. When the papilla cells provide nutrients to the matrix and the matrix cells commence producing the protein keratin, the tough stuff that hair, and interestingly nails, hooves, rhino horns and Port Jackson shark eggs are made from. The construction of a single filament of hair begins when a hair follicle enters what's called the growth phase. 
the papilla begins supplying nutrients to the matrix and for as long as it's receiving nutrients, the matrix cells will synthesise hair keratin. The keratin is produced as a round layer on the surface of the matrix. As soon as one layer is complete, another will be produced beneath it, leading to upwards lengthening of the hair through the skin's surface and beyond. The rate at which your matrix cells create keratin determines the rate at which your hair grows, and for humans this is generally about half a millimetre per day. A follicle will continue making hair until it enters what's called the resting phase. The papilla ceases to provide the matrix with nutrients, and the base of the newly formed hair detaches from the matrix and migrates away from the follicle base about halfway up the follicle tube. The hair will remain in this position, carrying out the jobs it was created for, like collecting sensory information, providing insulation and helping you to look pretty, until about halfway through the follicle's next growth phase, where the new hair, which is growing upwards towards the base of the old hair, causes the shedding of the old hair by pushing it out of the follicle. The duration of each follicle's growth and resting phases depends upon the follicle's location on the body and the genetic instructions follicles in that bodily location follow. Though it seems human head hair never stops growing, each of us has a genetically determined growth phase time period for our scalp follicles. Some people with long scalp follicle growth phases can grow hair to the ground. Others with short growth phases grow hair to just beyond their shoulders. For most humans, the scalp growth phase is between 5 and 10 years. The resting phase for head hair is conversely very short, and unless you're about to start suffering from baldness, just underneath each of your fully grown hairs is another hair filament waiting in the follicle to emerge as a replacement. Our scalp hair follicles are actually quite unusual in having such lengthy growth phases though. The duration of both resting and growth phases elsewhere in the body is dependent upon the follicle's location and the function of bodily hair in that area. For example, arm hairs, leg hairs, eyelashes and eyebrows all have very short growing phases. That's why the hairs aren't long. These hairs also have a reasonably long resting phase, and that's why we're not shedding our arm and leg hairs constantly. Imagine the carpet of little hairs that would build up everywhere. Ugh. This all explains a related phenomena. How is it that body hairs, when shaved off and not pulled out, can magically grow back to their natural full length? Well, I'm sorry to say that your underarm hairs aren't magic. Each shaved-off hair continues to grow outwards from the skin for the remainder of the growth phase that it was already undergoing. It then enters the resting phase and sits in the skin with its stubby end poking out until the next growth phase when the freshly formed underlying hair forces it to drop off. Many mammals that live in climates with very variable seasonal weather can coordinate the timing of their follicle growth and resting phases to coincide with changes in their habitat's temperature. They can molt. Molting mammals' follicles are doubly special in that they can coordinate their behaviour bodily-wide and can produce different kinds of hair. For example, as winter approaches, my dog Gemma has follicles that begin a growth phase that produces lots of short and fluffy hairs. These serve to keep her warm. By mid-spring though, these follicles cease their winter-long resting phase and commence growing back her sleek summer coat. And finally, you'll be pleased to know that both your hair and your pet's hair is good for the compost because hair is full of protein. 
Thank you, Lindsay. We've been splitting hairs over those issues for years. Thank you, Lindsay Gray. And the outro and intro was from Tilly Berlin. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And finally, here I am from 2005 explaining night terrors. Have you ever turned out the lights at night only to be woken by alien visitors, ghosts, demons or giant spiders? Here's what may be really happening. I went to an Australian skeptic's dinner and saw Lynn Kelly perform a magic act. She challenged the audience afterwards to consider the emotional as well as the intellectual reasons for people's supernatural beliefs. She published a book in 2004 called A Skeptic's Guide to the Paranormal. Lynn explained about her experience of night terrors, a kind of vivid hallucination that some people experience just before falling asleep or just after waking. It's a very real experience, and not anything at all like a dream. In fact, it's almost more vivid than real life. When you dream normally, your body is paralysed so you don't act on your dreams. If you wake up while your body is still paralysed, it's a frightening experience called sleep paralysis. People experiencing sleep paralysis often have a strong feeling that somebody or something is in the room that shouldn't be there. Researchers believe that a combination of night terrors and sleep paralysis may be the cause of people's experiences of alien abduction, visits by nighttime demons and ghosts. Lynn explained that she'd experienced large spiders jumping onto her bed, and she's taken that frightening experience and embraced it by studying spiders and using spider decorations and jewellery. She's now a friend of the spider. Lynn explained that people who experience night terrors are labelled in psychology as a fantasy-prone personality. Fantasy-prone personalities make up about 5% of the population. She asked everyone who'd ever experienced the night terror hallucinations to stand up, and I was one of them. Apparently, Lynn expected a number of us to stand up, but I'm the first person she's met who'd also seen the big spider that she's been visited by, and knows exactly how real the experience feels. The textbooks say that the fantasy-prone personality represents a diverse group of naturally imaginative and visionary individuals. Josephine Hilgard and other researchers have found that some people have a particularly rich inner fantasy life and cultivate a lifetime of vivid imagery experience corresponding to an openness to unusual experience, extraordinary memory in many cases, and capacity for intense concentration, sharp sensory acuity, and unusually strong somatic or bodily responses to mental imagery, such as a response to placebo. That's me. I discovered at an early age that I could hypnotise myself and others fairly easily. I use mental imagery to provoke bodily responses all the time, to deal with all the symptoms my illnesses have thrown up at me. I have a limited ability to affect pain and itching and other unpleasant symptoms in my body using mental imagery as a kind of graphic user interface of the autonomic nervous system.
<clears throat> I've been able to help other people's pains improve by sharing my imagery and a form of strong hypnotic suggestion when pain relieving drugs weren't to hand. I also I also use mental imagery to help me remember things by imagining a glow around something hot or dangerous or dirty in the building. I don't hallucinate and see things as real as a night terror, but I can see enough of my imaginary tag to be constantly reminded. On the Big Brother reality TV show back in 2004, one of the men in the house chopped up some chilli peppers and then later touched his genitals without remembering to wash his hands first. He was punished with an intensely painful burning sensation from the remains of the chilli juice on his hands. I was really surprised that he would forget and make that mistake. Despite the fact that I forget lots of things, as a fantasy-prone person, I would have visualised a tag of a red glow to remind me, and even if I suffered his absent-minded moment and forgot, when I next went to use my hands, the pretend red glow would still be there to remind me. This kind of deliberate mental imagery gives you the gift of easy rehearsal. And it also gives fantasy-prone people an uncanny beginner's luck, because they've already rehearsed and internalised a new skill before they try it. I caught the end of a documentary once that suggested that shamans and storytellers from the earliest times of human prehistory were fantasy-prone personalities, who were able to hypnotise themselves to induce a trance. With the skill of entrancing oneself comes the ability to entrance others. Fran Stalling is part of the Healing Story Alliance, a group of people dedicated to the therapeutic use of storytelling. She says... Both hypnosis and storytelling require a setting which fosters good concentration. People must be comfortable enough to relax and there should be a minimum of distractions. However, even when the audience sits on creaky bleachers in the hot sun and jackhammers pound across the street, as happened at one unlucky outdoor festival, certain powerful stories can still conjure a wall of silence within which the magic happens. Neurolinguistic programming is a storytelling and visualisation method of hypnosis. The idea is that you can apply light suggestions in a light trance by capturing and leading the imagination as you tell a story rich in metaphor. 10% of people are resistant to the trance state and are not able to easily learn to be hypnotised. I've experienced full-on blood running down the walls ghost haunting. But... I was secure in my knowledge that because I was in bed and I turned out the light to sleep, that I was probably just having a night terror. I decided I felt lucky and sat back and enjoyed the special effects. My way of coping with night terrors when they do produce anxiety is to immediately switch on a bedside light. This breaks the trance and restores you to normal waking consciousness. The hallucinations usually vanish. From electroencephalograph sleep research, night terrors seem to be a combination of waking and dreaming brainwaves overlapping. Light entering your eyes immediately changes your brainwaves. This is the basis of the UTS mind switch, which allowed you to switch electronic equipment on and off by opening and closing your eyes, and then just by thinking about it. 
with night terror hallucinations, pointing your finger at them and making a shooting gesture can also dispel the illusory demons. In my experience. And, because I've suggested it, this should now work for you. That was me in 2005 explaining how people with the gift of fantasy can use it for healing and entertainment, and for banishing things that go bump in the night. Since that time, research has been published showing that night terrors are way more common when the person suffering them is too hot, and when they have trouble breathing, either from snoring or from sinus problems. So if you're prone to night terrors and you sleep with an air conditioner and take a sinus spray, you'll have very few night terrors. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, 3NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.